musicians. You've just heard the message with song. So we'll see what it sounds like without the music. Intending to raise cattle, a family from Timmins bought a ranch out west. When their friends visited and inquired about the ranch's name, the would-be rancher replied, I wanted to name it the Bar J. My wife favored Susie Q. One of our sons wanted the Flying W. And the other liked the Lazy Y. So we're calling it the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. But where are all your cattle? The friends asked. None of them survived the branding. (laughs) Perhaps sometimes... We're like the rancher. We want to please everyone when it comes to what the gospel actually says. But by giving a watered-down version of the gospel, many of those who hear may not survive. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we know that you have all the answers, for you are the great creator of this world and of all things. Father, we ask for your wisdom and guidance as we study your word this morning. Speak to each of us as to your will for our lives and how we should act out your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our parable this morning is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. Now, this scripture is so familiar to us that some believers have read it over hundreds of times. But as we read it again, let's forget what we think it says and see if God doesn't give us some fresh insight. It's Jesus' last teaching before his final week in Jerusalem, and so it must be important. Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him. We should remember this. His subject hated him, not the ten servants. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy, In a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man and taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then 
didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. And he replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The parable of the ten minus is similar to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, which Wade will be speaking on in June. Some people assume that they are the same parable, but there are enough differences to warrant a distinction. The parable of the minus was told on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. The parable of the talents was told later on the Mount of, in the Mount of Olives. The audience for the parable of the mina was a large crowd. The audience for the parable of the talents was the disciples by themselves. The parable of the minus deals with two classes of people, servants and enemies. The parable of the talents deals with only the professed servants. In the parable of the minus, each servant receives the same amount. In the parable of the talents, each servant receives a different amount. And talents are worth far more than minus. In the minus, the servants receive identical gifts. In the talents, the good servants show identical faithfulness. In today's parable of the minus, a master entrusts his goods to his servants while he is away on a journey. Upon the master's return, the master evaluates the stewardship of the servants. He evaluates them in accordance with their faithfulness in using the goods in order to gain some profit from the stewardship. Again, indicated faithfulness on the part of the servant. Upon this evaluation, the master rewards his servants according to how they have handled their stewardship. In the case of the two faithful stewards, a positive reward is given. In the case of the single unfaithful servant, a negative return is given. The setting in Luke chapter 19 of this parable was out in the open among the crowd. Zacchaeus had just believed and the Lord had acknowledged his salvation. But the crowd was now looking for Jesus to set up his kingdom. And the specific reason Jesus told this parable was in response to the anticipation of the immediate coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. Today's parable shows that every servant has been given the same gift and that the difference in results is not due to different gifts, but to different levels of diligence in using that gift. The fact that each of the ten servants received one mina shows that it was not just, not just the twelve apostles who were in view, but rather God's servants in general. So, the parable is not directed just to those in leadership, but to all of Christ's followers. The fact that each was given the same amount shows that it is not referring to different gifts, 
but to something that all followers of Christ share in common, namely the Word of God, and in particular, the central message of that Word, the Gospel. We all have been given the same Gospel, and we're all told to do business with it for our King during his absence. In this parable, the owner is a nobleman who gives ten servants one mina each. When he returns, he asks for an accounting, but interesting, interesting enough, of the ten, we're only told of the responses of three of the servants. Why? We're not told. After he has dealt with them, he proceeds to judge the citizens who did not want him to rule over them. In the case of Jesus' parable, he is the nobleman who goes to a distant country to receive the kingdom. He is referring to his departure into heaven after his death and resurrection, where he would sit at the Father's right hand until he made his enemies a footstool. During his time away, he entrusts to each servant a mina, and each servant gets the same amount. Jesus told this parable to correct the false view of the disciples and others that the kingdom of God would be instituted in its full form when Jesus got to Jerusalem. He is showing them that there is both a present form of the kingdom while the king is away, and a future full sense of the kingdom when the king returns. Jesus has already spoken of the present sense of the kingdom, that it is in their midst, because he, the king, is in their midst. They didn't realize that he would suffer and die, be raised again, ascend into heaven, and that many years or decades or centuries would go by before he would return to establish his kingdom. In the meantime, he is still king, although absent. He wants his followers to know what they should be doing during that time. Rather than sitting around waiting for the king to return, they should do business for him, actively working to bring people under his loving lordship. In the story of the nobleman, his citizens, and the servants, Jesus presents three very distinctive lifestyles. First, there are the people who say, I want it my way. I'm going to get all that I can. And this is the attitude of the citizens who are the subjects of the future king. They don't want him. They have their own plans. They represent all those who insist on life on their own terms. By having it on, but by having it on your own terms is a mixed blessing. And unfortunately, enough is never enough. And these citizens were not entrusted with the nobleman's possessions. These citizens rejected the nobleman's rule entirely. These citizens were not evaluated for stewardship, but were judged for their rejection of the nobleman's rule. They were enemies because they rejected him. They received a different judgment, and this took place after the evaluation of the servants. It seems clear that this is a different group 
than the believers who obtain stewardship while the Lord is away. I would suggest that this group consists of the unbelievers who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. The contrast provided by this group in the parable only strengthens the idea that the Lord entrusts his gospel only to those in the church. If the object of our life is getting prestige, wealth, power, then we are the victim of an ever-increasing appetite which can never be satisfied. It takes a certain wisdom to know when enough is enough and to be able to move on to the more important questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? The parable Jesus tells here is a timely one. King Herod had just died and his son had journeyed to Rome to press his claims for the kingdom. Meantime, his subjects were sending delegations to Caesar, saying, this man is not acceptable as our king. Does that sound familiar? At Jesus' trial before Pilate, when asked if they would crucify their king, they said, we have no king but Caesar. In this parable, the nobleman was given the kingdom and he returned to slay those who didn't want him in power. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the king and that in the last day he will return to his kingdom. So whether you're an atheist, a skeptic, or one who practices any brand of non-Christian religion, doesn't change that reality. Jesus tells us through this parable, right now, You are free to debate and argue. But when the final curtain is closed, Jesus is Lord. The story of the servant who kept his mind safe in a handkerchief presents us with the second way to live, cautiously and conservatively. And the question is, does this unfaithful servant represent a true believer who loses his rewards, one who is saved, Or, is he a person who professes to know God, but by his deeds he denies him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless worthless for any good deed? Does this servant then represent those in the church who know the gospel and should believe it, but are indifferent and unconcerned about the master's purpose and kingdom? As a result, they're not using the opportunities that he has given them to further his kingdom. They are living for themselves and making up excuses as to why they are not serving the king. The problem for some interpreters, according to their theology, is the servant who fails and is negatively judged ends up being classified as an unbeliever or perhaps a believer who loses his salvation. But I would ask, is this biblical? A commentator commentator may say that this failed servant is an unbeliever, perhaps a professing believer who is not born again. The commentator may base that idea upon the servant's view of the master or upon his lack of faithfulness. But what is most amazing is that such commentators agree that the two successful servants represent genuine believers who are faithful in service. If they agree to this, 
then they must see that this story is about stewardship. Scripture tells us that Christ gives gifts to his church for use to use for service while he is away. He doesn't give these gifts to unbelievers. Also, are non-believers Christ's servants? In this matter of stewardship, if this matter of stewardship applies to the true servants with a positive reward, how could it not possibly apply to this other servant? If the master giving possessions to the first two servants means stewardship, the gift of his possessions to the third servant must also mean stewardship. Where in the New Testament are unbelievers considered as servants of Christ? When does Christ ever give spiritual or other gifts to unbelievers for their stewardship in order to bring people to him? This is totally against Scripture. Also, let us remember that the Lord's rebuke of the worthless servant was that he was wicked and lazy. And actually, his wickedness is just his failure to exercise proper stewardship. Because the Lord scolded him that he could have at least produced a minimal return if he had put forth the effort, so the Lord judged him for poor exercise of stewardship. The other possibility that may be taught by some is that this third, third servant is a real believer. But due to his lack of proper stewardship, Jesus will judge him with eternal damnation. Clearly, we cannot accept this theory, as that would introduce the false notion that eternal salvation depends upon works and not grace alone. So we must declare that works do not play a part in our eternal salvation. From the ultimate penalty of sin, eternal death, death, and the lake of fire. Rather, we believe that Christ paid the penalty for us and has released us from that. It's God's grace, a gift received through faith, apart from works, that saves us to be with God for all eternity. Some believers and teachers feel that a real born-again believer will automatically produce good fruit and be faithful in service to the end. I wish this were the case. But the New Testament simply does not bear this theory out. Take just one book of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians. Were not these Corinthians considered real, true believers? Paul addresses them right from the start. Paul certainly does not mean that some of these Corinthians did not have a relationship with God. He has already stated that they did. The idea that the third servant cannot be a believer because of his actual failure in stewardship in this life is not supported by this scripture. Many of the, many of the Corinthians were already failing in service to the Lord not because of lack of service, but because of defective service, marked by division. Paul warned them strongly, implying that such service would be tested by fire and burned up, with the result that the person would suffer loss, negative reward at the judgment seat. Yet, they would be personally saved as true fire. The Christian concept is that we have a Savior, 
who can forgive the violence that we have all done to someone or something. The third lifestyle that we are presented with in this particular scripture is that of the faithful steward. Ten servants are given one mina each. Each servant was to invest his mina while the nobleman was gone. Yet we're only told what three of these servants did with their money. And of those three, only the one who increased his investment ten times was praised. The one who made five times was rewarded with five cities. But only the most fruitful servant was, was commended. The servant who simply saved his original mina displeased his master to such an extent that his one mina was taken away. In the case of the servant who produced no results with his mina, the master's judgment is a denial of reward. But this, but this servant is not consigned to outer darkness. The distinct, this distinction reflects how every believer has eternal security, regardless of the degree of our dedication. Faith is required for salvation. A good testimony is not. A believer with a poor testimony who fails in dedication will still be saved by their faith and cannot be denied the kingdom. Jesus seems to be saying that there are only two classes of believers, the fruitful and the unfruitful. The fruitful are alive and reproducing. It's a powerful command that we are to leave more behind than we found. If we don't, then we've missed the mark. We are stewards of our lives and all we have. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, So then, men ought to regard us, those of us who are Christians, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. So as Christians, we're more than just stewards of our own lives. We're stewards of the secret things or the mysteries of God. We believe that God loves us, that Jesus died for us, and that his spirit is now available for us. Those are some of the mysteries of which we are stewards. We may look frail and imperfect, but somehow in this earthly vessel is a treasure. We read in Scripture that we will become those unique miracles that God had in mind at our creation and at our redemption. As stewards of our own lives, are we increasing? To be fruitful, we invest our lives, our jobs, our money, our reputation, and our security. Otherwise, we decrease and die. We're also stewards of the mystery of the church, the body of Christ. We are the family of God. And as stewards of the mysteries of the body of Christ, we need to be investing in the future so that there will be more loving, more caring, more support, more mission, and more involvement for the next generation. Finally, we are stewards of the world, one of God's great mysteries. God made the world, and he so loved the world that Christ died for the world. The world is ours because we are his, and the world is his. So will there be more justice, more equality, more compassion, more liberty, more opportunity, 
more peace in the world because we have lived? If we are fruitful, we will be more tomorrow than we are today. Personally, as members of the body of Christ and as servants of the world. May our, may our aim be to hear those words of commendation from verse 17. Well done, my good servant. In 1997, more than one million people gathered in one of the most historic meetings of modern times. The Washington, D.C. Stand in the Gap rally brought together people from every denomination and walk of life. Several outstanding speakers presented the message of Christ to live a life of holiness in their homes and in their places of employment. When the invitations were given, thousands of them answered the call of commitment. One of the speakers was well-known author Max Lucado. In making his point about the single source of our salvation, he asked them to shout out the names of the denomination with which they were associated. Almost like rolling thunder, the names of the denominations were shouted. The jumble of names was massive and very confusing, as you can imagine. Then Lucado quieted the people and he asked them to shout out the name of their Savior. Those who were there will never forget it. Over one million people shouted in one voice, Jesus. They got the message. Church affiliation alone isn't the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus willingly obeyed God during the events leading up to his death. And that obedience made salvation possible. Jesus uses parables to teach his followers to be ready for his return. Jesus wants his followers to be busy in service and in sharing the good news right up until the day of his return. The servant who turned one mina into ten is rewarded with ten cities. Well, the servant who turned one mina into five gets five cities. But here's the punchline to the parable. That everyone who has will be given more. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus is saying there are rewards for hard work. Yet, we might say everything comes to us by grace, not works. Jesus is my only reward. Yet, Jesus spoke about storing up treasures in heaven. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, that we would be rewarded for our labor. So which is it? Grace, works, grace plus works. There is such a thing as a heavenly reward, but it's not money or mansions. It's people. People are the most valuable things on earth and to God. And unlike gold, we can take them with us. The parable isn't about investing in money, but in people. He who has will be given more as a reference to spiritual brothers and sisters. It's describing the dividends of love. Jesus is saying, if you freely give what you have freely received, love and grace, it will come back to you multiplied. So live for Jesus and his gospel, and our spiritual family will grow and keep growing even after we're gone. When we put grace to work by investing uh, investing in the lives of others, 
grace grows. It produces seed-bearing fruit that lasts, later produces fruit of its own. In this life, we may never see the full harvest of our generosity, but one day we will. And on that day, we will share in our Master's happiness. Jesus is saying some of us are going to be surprised when we see the impact that we have had on others. We have no idea how many people our life has touched. How many people do we think have been blessed by Paul's message of grace over the centuries? It must be millions, if not hundreds of millions. Perhaps one day, people like you and me will line up to thank Paul for putting his grace mina to work. And what a long lineup that will be. So do we see how the good seed of the gospel bears much fruit and continues bearing fruit even after we're gone? Truly, the word, the great word of grace is potent and fruitful. Imagine if Paul had buried what God had given him. Instead of traveling the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel, instead he focused on tent making. Don't bury the gift. Put God's grace to work and see the awesome harvest that it will bring. One day the nobleman will return. One day Jesus will return. And what a glorious day that will be. For we're told in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men and women by which we must be saved. A personal relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, is God's answer for your life and for mine. This time I'd like to ask the musicians to come back up, close us in praise and prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to get together to, to praise you and to, to hear from your word. God, I pray that, uh, that it would continue to work in our hearts. God, that uh, you would help us better serve you and serve you people. You know what those are. The two most important things that we